Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre. And today I welcome back to the podcast Dr. Frank Sauer, Senior Researcher at the Bundeswehr University in Munich, and Sebastian Fact, a defense expert, and at the time of this recording, he was the head of the Friedrich Naumann Foundation Security Hub. These two gentlemen were already in the podcast on episode 29, and you should go back and listen to that conversation because it connects nicely to some of the topics we're going to go over today. And after all this, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of August. So I'm here back with Frank Sauer and Sebastian Fack. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is cool. This is premiere. I've never reappeared on someone else's podcast. So. <laughs> well, we <laughs> Apparently, had... I did something right last time. Yes, yes, you did, sir. Uh, we had a very interesting conversation that you can find on the previous podcast with Frank and Sebastian, where we talk about defense and particularly the uh, autonomous weapons and what are the main concerns. But we didn't exhaust the conversation then. There was a couple of more topics that I wanted to have the expertise of these two gentlemen here on the pod. But to just make a quick summary of the last conversation, we know that it's ethically questionable to delegate life or death decisions to machines. It involves questions of dignity, violation of international humanitarian laws, and not just have uh, computers deciding who lives and who dies. But there are other important questions, and these ones are more related to the uh, war theater scenarios. And this is where I'm going to throw it to you guys. Because the, if this podcast had a title, the title would be My Algorithm is Better Than Your Algorithm. When we talk about, for example, what happens with the speed of decision making with machines and how that can influence um, strategic and military decisions. Let's start there. And I'm going to throw it to you, Frank, because help us understand what it is. Unpredictable behavior of autonomous weapon systems. What does this mean to you? Help us understand a little bit what is the, the problem here. So we talked about how um, in a autonomous or fully automatic weapon, um, there's no longer a, a human selecting and engaging targets, but that is done by the machine, right? And um, we actually have you know, quite a lot of experience with algorithmic decision-making in other fields of life. And one of the um, main areas where people are pointing to uh, in the in the discussion about um, automation in warfare is uh, the stock market. Mm. And one of the experiences, one of the nasty experiences actually that we've made um, at the stock market is that algorithmic trading has, uh, is specifically error-prone in, in some respects. And there's a thing actually called flash crashes, which is when either one algorithm is um, behaving in an unforeseen way, say, he, selling stocks at you know ginormous amounts uh, all of a sudden, or when two trading algorithm, uh, algorithms are interacting in um, unforeseen ways. And so there's a, there's some concern deriving from this, and many people are arguing that if we hand over the decision uh, to engage targets on the battlefield to al algorithms, we could, you know, potentially see, um, you know, similar developments 
in in war and obviously the one of the most you know troubling um, thoughts would be that algorithms of adversarial you know forces uh, start interacting in a way that was not foreseen some would argue cannot even be foreseen because you cannot you know simulate all the possibilities that could unfold uh, and then that we end up say in a shooting war algorithmically decided without you know any human having formed that intent how much is this and I'll, I'll i'll stay here with you frank how much is this then a problem how much do you see this being something that it's on the forefront of um, of the designing and the applications of uh, this kind of autonomous weapons sure so <clears throat> it's probably good to step back and and think about it in a in a or develop the framework within which all these concerns unfold and um you've mentioned it already but it is really um paramount to understand that speed is actually the key driver of in my mind at least of the entire um development uh, towards more and more autonomy in weapons systems and um to understand why speed is so important it's it's good to know that um every military engagement can be systematized in form of uh, in in the form of a targeting process right and the targeting process is you know lengthy and complicated it has political and and legal and ethical layers all intertwined but what is most important to our discussion here is the operational and the tactical level and every military engagement runs through a specific cycle of steps and that is usually find fix track select engage and assess and you've heard me use the the uh, the uh, refer to the selection and engagement of targets that that's that was me referring to the latter parts of the targeting cycle or kill chain right and so you can easily imagine like a weapon system that is finding fixing tracking and then selecting and engaging targets and then assessing and then it rinses and repeats the cycle if necessary and we talked about one of the examples uh, the harpy loitering munition in the in the last uh, podcast that we recorded uh, which you know demonstrates that there's already something like that out there you know weapon systems that automatically without human intervention human input complete that targeting cycle already exists and you know some of them are used for defensive purposes basically to shoot down incoming munitions and then it's a great thing which goes to show that neither is full autonomy in weapon systems necessarily new nor is it necessarily problematic it depends basically and i'm really dumbing it down now it depends on what you're shooting at if you're just shooting at a piece of metal then it's fine but as soon as we start endangering human life, we've got all these legal and ethical troubles. And now we're talking about this, the speed um, aspect of the entire story. And it is obvious now that if you imagine a, um, a system that is completing the targeting cycle without human intervention at machine speed, fighting at machine speed is actually a standing term that is being kicked around. It will always be faster completing this cycle than a system that is remotely controlled because you know the signals have to go back and forth and you have the slow human in there that has to make decisions and then press the button or push the joystick or do whatever and the signal goes back to the system and the system is reacting whereas if the your adversary is you know fully automated and does all these things internally on a tactical level the loop the targeting cycle will always be completed before 
uh, before the remotely operated system can act. And that's why speed is driving the entire endeavor, I think, to, to a large degree. And now to get back to what we were saying before about algorithms doing stuff that is unforeseen or unwanted or several algorithms interacting, if we speed these things up to a point where humans can't, even if they wanted, intervene because everything is running at a pace that human cognition can't even follow, then we lose humans as sort of a circuit breaker in that system to prevent if things go wrong. And um, the Chinese have coined a great term, um, um, everybody who's more interested in this, especially uh, in uh, more interested in looking at the Chinese side of things, should read all the writings of Elsa Kanya. Um, and um, uh, she dug up this fantastic term that is apparently can be found in Chinese literature on the issue, and it's called battlefield singularity. And the battlefield singularity is basically when all the processes on the battlefield have been sped, sped up um, to a tempo that escapes human cognition. And so um, many people are very worried uh, about this taking place because then we create all sorts of escalatory risks that we can't control any longer. And now, Sebastian, I'm going to go to you because if we are taking human cognition and intervention out of the process, like Frank was saying, then what can we do to make sure that if there is an escalation, it is in some way controllable? Well, yeah, I think Frank said that that um, this is very hard to control if, if you take the element of human control out. But um, I would like to um, to throw another question at Frank, actually, because if we look at today's situation, the majority of conflicts we see are not conflicts between nation states, not interstate conflicts, but the majority of conflicts we see are conflicts between national armed forces on the one side and some other organizations like armed groups, insurgents, uh, let's take branches of Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or pro-Russian rebels in Ukraine on the other side. So this asymmetrical scenario is pretty much the common pattern today. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, how far can such groups be away from employing such technology in the future? Because the, the, the countries that are now developing AI and weapon systems are the, the really highly developed ones like Israel or United States or China. So how far are we away from such not nation state groups to, to use artificial intelligence and weapon systems? Okay, so let me first challenge your assumption, um, because it is, of course, true that the the paradigm um, uh, for conflict over the last 20 years or so were, um, was this notion of asymmetric warfare. That has changed, though. I would say three, four, for the last three to four years, for instance, if you look at Washington, it is very much uh, clear to me that Washington has switched gears strategically from um, the paradigm of asymmetric engagements to a paradigm of, um, you know, keeping ahead of near peer competitors. So Washington is, if you look at the policy documents at this point in time, very clearly looking at China and Russia and thinking about engagements with those powers. 
Um, there's a thing called the so-called third offset strategy um, that already begun uh, in the second Obama administration. And this idea of leveraging AI and putting autonomy in systems is very much within uh, this line of thought. And it is about keeping the technological edge and keeping ahead of China and, and Russia. And so I would first of all, I would say the strategic paradigm within which all these things develop is is not, you know, fighting Al Qaeda or fighting uh, the Islamic State or whatever, but it is very much fighting China, you know, and big symmetric force engagements. It's actually very interesting. Uh, if people want to dig deeper into this, there's a video that you can probably quite easily find on the Internet uh, where um, Air Force General, I think his name is Goldfein, um, in at a weapons expo in last year in summer presented a what he called nearly automated kill chain. And it is it's an experimental setup that they tested, but apparently he presented it as if it works. And how it worked is that there was a, there's a satellite and it's picking up a target and the satellite is relaying the target data to a aerial asset, a surveillance plane. And the surveillance plane is fixing the target and it's then uh, again relaying all data to a naval destroyer. And the destroyer is selecting the target and there's a human on the destroyer pushing the button and then releasing the weapon and then the target is engaged. And it is it should be clear to everyone that this human on this destroyer is there for policy reasons. It is not due to technical reasons. You could easily pull that final uh, plug and, and remove the human from the loop completely and just have this kill train run fully automatically. And this is clearly geared towards, you know, naval battles and, you know, engaging in a near-peer competitor navy. Now, back to your question, non-state actors, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot going on there, of course. The Islamic State, for instance, um, you know, use drones to engage uh, main battle tanks, you know, quite clever things that, that they did uh, when the tanks were parked somewhere and, and, and you know, opened up the hatch, then they, they would drop, drop little bomblets in there and try to kill the crew, all these kinds of things. My, my general statement in that regard would be, obviously, we cannot curb the diffusion of this technology because the Islamic State had these kinds of weapons, not because they had a, a weapons program or something like that, but because they had an Amazon account, okay? They, they just, you, you order a drone and then you clip a, clip a grenade to it and then that's that. But you're of course right. Um, the high-tech nations are the ones pushing the env envelope in terms of making these uh, sorts of uh, systems autonomous. And what I would say is that if we regulate this and if we, you know, um, steer this development um, with rules and regulations, then at least we, um, you know, minimize the probability that it will diffuse that, you know, uh, autonomy in weapon systems, which is at the end just software, that this diffuses uncontrollably around the globe. Can we totally handle and control all these things? No. I mean, technically speaking, any terrorist group determined enough could also build a chemical weapon or a nuclear device, a simple nuclear device, or a biological weapon. Is it, you know, can we can we make this impossible to them? No, but we could probably reduce the risk that this happens in the near future if the if the great powers got together and got to, you know, put their thumb on the, the, on the development. And so, yeah, non-state actors obviously are one of the more trickier um, pieces of the puzzle. 
but um, I think you could at least do something about it. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I agree that that uh, if you look at the great power competition between the US and China, uh, there might definitely be a return to the possibility of nation-state war. Um, but, uh, well, at least I would say when we look at Europe, the intervention pattern is still there. And especially if you look at France, which now is the dominating actor in European defense, uh, France is also probably the last um, greater power to still believe in the, uh, the value of an intervention and mm. in its possibility of success. Um, when we talk about escalation because of artificial intelligence in weapon system, I am also thinking about one other aspect. Um, in those intervention scenarios, for example, in Mali or Afghanistan, mm -hmm. it's very much not only about winning militarily against the insurgents, it's also about winning over hearts and minds of people. Mm -hmm. um, because otherwise you provide your opponent with more um, potential to, to recruit. So I'm wondering if you deploy more autonomous or even artificially intelligent systems, don't you alienate that population even more? Don't you cause more hatred? Don't you provide even more potential for recruitment? That's an interesting aspect. Um, I mean, if we look at the engagements in Afghanistan or, or Mali and um, look at things uh, like for instance, the use of unmanned aerial vehicles, and I'm not I'm not talking you know remotely piloted vehicles, these kinds of things, uh, and also all the other equipment like a, I don't know like a German dingo armored vehicle or you know what have you. We're already like space aliens to to the local population with uh, with the body armor and the and the guns and the goggles and the flying drones and the armored cars. And I'm not even sure that it would make, you know, uh, a big difference or that it would even be noticeable if the drone above is, you know, piloted by a human or piloting itself. I think we would definitely cross another line only if we had robots marching through the street. <laughs> so uh, actually, <laughs> um, um, a cool... Uh, the, th the scene that I'm thinking of is... Um, the uh, Robocop reboot. So Robocop got rebooted a couple of years ago um, and the movie uh, was received very badly. Actually, I don't think it's that bad, but there's a great opening scene where apparently in this not so distant future, there was a war between the US and Iran and Tehran is um, occupied and the US is using robots. And I mean like bipedal Terminator like robots to patrol the streets. And we are obviously, I think we talked about the whole Terminator notion and how it's a giant, you know, distraction from, from the actual issues. But, you know, since we're going in that direction, I will say this, if we ever end up someplace like this, then I think we would have definitely haven't created yet another problem of alienating the people that we actually want to, want to win over. Because, you know, yeah, robots through the streets, definitely uh, not sending sending a good signal. <laughs> uh, Frank, I'm going to go back a little bit because you mentioned uh, Amazon and this kind of uh, automated weapons. I don't know if Jeb Bezos knows about this, if you're giving him any extra ideas. 
I would be I would be cautious cautious there. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Uh, I've heard I've heard that Jeff Bezos has the most villainous cackling laugh. Uh, I, I'm not sure if, if it's true, but I've heard that somebody said that that he is literally laughing like a supervillain, and with the with the rest of it, the looks, it's just uh, it's. Too yes, he could true, easily fit on a James Bond movie where he plays the the evil totally. the evil genius. All right, gentlemen, uh, we're getting to the end of our conversation again, like it happened last time, and it's just awesome. We have so much to talk about. But one thing that I would like to have during this conversation is the relation between conventional uh, warfare and nuclear warfare and how this automated decision-making can affect all this. Because if we get to a point, and Frank, you say that it's hard to get there, and we'll, I'll go to you in a minute, but before I'll throw it to Sebastian, because Sebastian, for example, the United States is spending $40 billion dollars between 2017 and 2026 to update all command and control systems. Russia and China, they're also working on that. Are you afraid of this fully automated systems and, and circuits with nuclear at the nuclear decision level? Or do you think also that this is something that we don't have to be that worried right now? Well, yes. Um, I'm sure Frank will provide some background what, what that actually will mean for nuclear stability. Uh, let me start by saying that I'm concerned about that, but not so much in the case of Russia and the United States, because we think to focus on, on the US and Russia because they together own 95% of the nuclear arsenal of the world, uh, and because we tend to believe that we are now in like a new Cold War scenario. But to be honest, 1% of the world's nuclear arsenal is already enough to wreak terrible havoc. Um, and I see the risk of escalation between these two rather low at the moment, because make no mistake, Vladimir Putin has proven time and time again that his goal is to divide and to weaken the West in general and Europe in particular. But I don't believe that his goal is to destroy the West or Europe. And we should also not forget mm -hmm. that Russia has a much stronger and better educated civil society than it had in Soviet Union times. And part of that society might still tolerate military adventures in Georgia and Ukraine, but they won't tolerate a nuclear strike or full-on war. Um, I think if we are afraid of that, we should look to, to Pakistan and India. Um, mm -hmm. Because... Uh, uh, Al Jazeera just reported yesterday that in March there have been more than 400 breaches of the ceasefire. Pakistan shut down an Indian drone yesterday. If you look at how India is treating its Muslim population at the moment, how it has uh, reduced the autonomy rights of its Kashmir region, I think these two are really problematic ones. And I'd be interested to learn more about what, what the chances of, of these two employing artificial intelligence and their command and control systems would be. All right, Frank, you want to jump in here? Sure. Um, so it's probably uh, good to note up front that I have actually my background is in nuclear weapons. So my, my doctoral thesis was on nuclear weapons and this, you know, combining artificial intelligence in the military and nuclear weapons is obviously for me, it's the ultimate doom and gloom sandwich. It's like the best <laughs> thing that ever happened. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, joking aside, maybe I should unpack the term entanglement first. Um, if I'm not completely mistaken, it is it is a term um, developed by James Acton and, and a couple of other people 
And what it says is that these two formerly quite separated domains of conventional warfighting and nuclear war um, are starting to, or let's say that the boundary between the between conventional and nuclear gets blurrier and blurrier. And so there's entangling between the two. And one of the one of the reasons why that takes place is that high-tech conventional weapons have become so capable that they uh, are starting to be um, a threat to nuclear assets. And autonomy in weapon systems is a driving factor there. And it's it's a big debate. It's a big issue. There's all kinds of things that you could uh, you know talk about. But I will give you a specific example, which I think shows where this is headed. And this is um, a Lockheed Martin, if I'm not completely mistaken, Lockheed Martin, uh, you know, promotional video. And I think that was at the beginning of March, I think, um, um, that it was released. And it was about a program called Loyal Wingman, which um, describes unmanned systems accompanying uh, fighter jets like the F-35. And in that video, these unmanned systems took out uh, like, like video, you know, it's like video graphics, like an animation, took out Russian land-based nuclear forces. And you can, you know, can easily see how Russia was not amused, right? So because what it is sending, the signal that it is sending is that we have conventional high-tech weaponry with which we can hold your nuclear assets at risk. And so it complicates the entire nuclear deterrence, mutual assured destruction um, logic which is already, you know, a whole can of worms all of itself. And so all in all, this, you know, scratching the boundary to nuclear with conventional assets is, you know, detrimental to nuclear stability. Because, you know, in an ideal world or as ideal as it can be with nuclear weapons around, you would have, you know, you would want two nuclear powers and with you know a second strike capabilities that are assured and secure and you will ha you, you want to have you know some transparency and everybody knows you know what's going on and where they're at and nothing else disturbing this equilibrium and these conventional developments are getting in there and making it you know more complicated even more complicated than it already is and you know, Russia will, of course, react to that. And we have a chain of consequences connected to that, which we don't know where it ends. And it just makes things less stable and less um, um, less secure for everyone. Yes. On that point, Frank, so, and the, the paper you published on military applications, artificial intelligence, you also give the example of the Perdix. And I hope I'm saying this right. The Perdix yeah. system which uh, search for mobile missile launchers and also the Sea Hunter mm -hmm. who can look mm -hmm. for uh, nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarines. So again, mm -hmm. as you were saying, the uh, entanglement could be from just uh, conventional weaponry and then all of a sudden you're in a nuclear realm without even having time to adapt. Exactly, yeah. I mean, Sea Hunter is probably the best example because Sea Hunter is the best example uh, for a conventional system endangering um, nuclear stability because what Sea Hunter does, or perspectively systems like Sea Hunter uh, might be capable of doing, is uh, continuously trailing for days, weeks, months, as long as they are at sea, your adversary's um, ballistic missile submarines. And if you look at this from a perspective of smaller nuclear powers, such as, say, France or Britain, 
who completely rely on solely a, a C-based deterrent for um, uh, for second strike capability, um, that is of course catastrophic because it removes their deterrent. It removes their capability to say, if we are being hit with nuclear weapons, we will strike back with our sea-based um, uh, weapons, which you don't know where they are. And so they are always secure and, uh, and usable for us. And you're taking away that and um, we're all in all sorts of hot water in terms of stable deterrence. Well, that that leads me to a, a very small story. And again, uh, using the, the paper that Frank wrote, where he told the story about Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov in, in 1983, how he uh, fortunately uh, avoided what could have been at the time a, a, a nuclear exchange. So, uh, uh, gentlemen, as we finish our conversation, I'll throw it to you guys because I think we should end on a positive note. And that is machines, as good as they are, they don't have intuitions. They cannot improvise. They cannot analyze the data in a, in a, in a more human way, trying to understand error, trying to understand uh, context. So I'll start with you, uh, Sebastian. And again, this is my original uh, question, which is we are not going, fortunately so, we are not going into a, a state where we're giving the machines the entire domain of uh, command and control systems. Right. Well, I am a big fan of human control as a former soldier. And my perception is that the, in the debate, when we talk about human control, uh, the argument very often goes is that the, the decision on engagement as one element on the target cycle needs to be under human control. But I think this is too narrow. I think already the selection of a target should be under human control because you can get all sorts of biases if this is done by a machine. Let's imagine a machine is looking for an insurgent and the machine has learned from recent history that most insur insurgents are Muslims. So maybe the machine is only proposing you potential targets that look like Muslims. So it's this sort of biases that need to be avoided already in the selection process. So this is why me as a former soldier, I would wish for as much of, as human control as possible, not only when it comes to engagement. Yeah, I think you're making a very, very important point. And it's probably for the listeners, it might be worth going back uh, and listen to the first episode that we recorded because we um, went quite deep into um, the um, the brittleness and opaqueness of um, the way that current machine learning based uh, artificially intelligent system uh, artificially intelligent uh, systems work. And so, the Petrov example I think is the prime prime example. Stanislav Petrov in 1983 is, and I'm really shortening the story here, but he's the reason why why we didn't blow ourselves off of the face of the planet in 1983. If Stanislav Petrov had not been there and an algorithm had just, you know, received the data, fed it through, uh, you know, the the decision-making processes tasked to, uh, to perform, then what would have happened is that um, the Kremlin would have been alarmed and they would have, you know, been noticed there are, you know, 16 US nuclear missiles in flight and they will, you know, hit Moscow in seven minutes or something like that. And it is highly likely that they would have retaliated against an attack that never actually took place. And what Petrov did is puzzling together all kinds of contextual information that wasn't really in the data, which led him to the conclusion that it's 
fairly unlikely that this is an actual attack. And he was right with that. And so this is really, that's why I was saying this is crossing the boundary of insanity. It's not many people that are suggesting something like this, that are suggesting, uh, suggesting hey, let's remove the human from the equation completely uh, re with regard to the question, do we want nuclear weapons to be used or not? I, would, I have to say this very clearly. It is a fringe um, debate, um, but it has begun about uh, two years ago or something like that. First, the first people came out of the, out of the woodwork and they were saying like, yeah, but early warning times have, have become so, so brief um, and hypersonic missiles are changing the game, which is not true at all. That's another podcast maybe talk about hypersonic uh, missiles. But... Um, it's very, very important to nip this in the bud and say, yes, I mean, for data processing and all these kinds of things, feel free to use AI. But with regard to the decision if to actually employ nuclear weapons, yes or no, I think it would be because of all the reasons that we talked about before in the conventional realm, all the unforeseen escalatory dynamics and algorithms doing unforeseen things and the brittleness of these systems overall, it would be very, very foolish uh, to hand away human control uh, there. All right, gentlemen, it's a privilege to have you on the pod. These conversations are fantastic. And let's end on that positive note, which is the people that want to give this to Skynet are still a very small minority, and let's keep them that way. All right, this has been very illuminating. I'm going to thank you guys for coming to the podcast. And the door is open at any time we can come back and continue this conversation. Another sequel? <laughs> Ricardo's running out of guests. Yeah. No, 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 not at all, sir. Happy to talk. <laughs> there, there's always a lot to talk about. I, I'd be happy to. It's good to have you guys here. Thank you so much, Ricardo. It was great being here again. Yeah, thanks. I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. And if you feel like it, give us a five star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this month of August. On the 15th of August, based in the Netherlands, we're going to have the event ELF Studio Europe. During this online session, but also physical sessions, Young and upcoming professionals will participate in education and training programs that are given by international recognized trainers and experts that will focus on finding answers to major challenges of liberalism in the 21st century. Elf Studio Europe is a project of the European Liberal Forum supported by the AIE von Sommeren Stichting VVT International, Project Polska and the International Educational Centre. And then on the 20th of August in Reykjavik, Iceland, we're going to have the event Tell Me Your Story. During this three-day long workshop, communication experts from diverse sectors will show communication officers from liberal organizations how to structure and execute a communication strategy that is based on emotions and which features storyline aspects. To know more about this event, you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place.
The Liberal Europe podcast is organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. Yeah.